tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Christmas at the Breakers. It's a holiday spectacular like none other, complete with thousands of lights and skillfully decorated Christmas trees. I want them to come to the house and be blown away by the house. And Christmas is just sort of the cherry on the top. Coal is a valuable substance, Cratchit. Shaking up a Christmas carol, reimagining Dickens' timeless classic. The fact that you are able to take a new approach to a story that everybody knows and loves is a huge opportunity for an artist. Does it matter if a man is the conduit or a woman is the conduit to tell the story of redemption? I don't think it does. Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head were very kind of plain. They were plastic like this, but they had very little personality. And so we had the job of, you know, bringing uh, freshness and more life and animation into the characters. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We begin tonight in Newport, where some of the most lavish homes from the Gilded Age are ready for their Christmas close-up. The Breakers Mansion was enjoyed by the Vanderbilt family for many summer getaways. These days, it's become a favorite place to visit during the holiday season. But some may be surprised to learn that one of America's richest families didn't actually spend Christmas there. The decorations that people see when they come to visit the Breakers during the Christmas season is purely created by our staff, and they are great designers, as anyone who has walked through here would know. It is our imagination of what a Gilded Age mansion might have looked like during Christmas. The reimagining begins right as you enter the Breakers. We have several aspirations for our visitors when they come. We want to wow them. Uh, this is an extraordinary house. All of the mansions are extraordinary. They're big, they're impressive, they're over the top, they're opulent. And we certainly want people to enjoy that because it's not a view that one sees daily in our lives. That wow starts in the aptly named Great Hall, where a 15-foot tall tree greets visitors made entirely of fresh poinsettia plants. People love to stand in front of that tree. I think a lot of people have their holiday cards made in front of that tree, and it is impressive. Assembling the poinsettia tree starts in November, but the planning begins months before. All of the poinsettias featured in the breakers were grown in greenhouses run by the Preservation Society of Newport County. We generally try to take inspiration from the decor of the room itself, or maybe a motif in the room. Jim Donahue is the mastermind behind the holiday decor at the Breakers and two other mansions. We're in the breakfast room, uh, which is the informal dining area for the family. And so the theme on this tree is fruit and flowers. Here he incorporates the room's colors into the tree's decor, from the sage green walls to the salmon colored drapes. In general, I start decorating the interior of the tree with larger, simpler ornaments, and then add each type of ornament moving out to the tips. And at the tips, I have the most ornamented, detailed um, decorations so that they really stand in high contrast and you see them in profile. 
Standing nine feet tall and adorned with 1,500 lights, this is one of nine fully decorated themed trees at the Breakers. I do a lot of shifting of ornaments from room to room and house to house, but I tend to stay with the same theme. I try to change it enough that if you come back every year as a visitor, it looks different every year. Frequent guests may notice new additions to Christmas trees all around the Breakers, including these train ornaments in what was once the bedroom of Cornelius Vanderbilt II. Each tree tells a story about the family that once called this mansion home. This tree pays tribute to his uh, career as CEO of the New York Central Railroad. So we have many pictures of him uh, in his tycoon top hat. So we feature top hats on this tree. And we also have a collection of glass uh, trains of all different styles. The tree in Mr. Vanderbilt's room has a 19th century vintage theme, complete with mixed plaid ornaments, as well as green, white, and red holiday lights. The tree also features uh, acorns. Acorns were on the Vanderbilt family crest, and in this case we have uh, plaid acorns as well, so it's quite the festival of plaid going on. Another one of Donahue's favorite trees can be found in the bedroom of Mr. Vanderbilt's oldest daughter, Gertrude. Her room has a fabric wall covering that features a brown field with various shades of pink cabbage roses on it. And so we started out with the pink cabbage roses, which are all over the tree. But then we wanted to bring in the sense of her being a fashionable Gilded Age woman. So there's a lot of millinery, tassels, buttons, uh, things that would be found in a woman's wardrobe. But at the same time, it's avant-garde because she was an artist. So it's a very unusual sort of style of tree, especially with the pink lights. <laughs> this is the first year they've had pink lights on the tree, which complements the rose gold acorns and tassels. Many of the things on this tree are custom made. The skirt is custom made. All the ribbon at the top is all custom sewn. We even had matching stockings custom made for the mantelpiece. The planning begins when the Christmas season ends, and then in November, it all comes to life. Donahue says it takes two weeks to get the breakers decked out for the holidays. What we've decided to do is that um, rather than try to have a theme every year, we try to enhance the theme of each room. So when I do my buying, which is actually in January of the a month following the close of Christmas, um, I try to make each tree better for its theme. For instance, this fruit and flower theme behind me, I've probably been working on for 10 years, and I'll retire things that aren't so great, and I'll add new things that are better, I hope, and each year it's improved. The Christmas trees, lights, and ornaments are all meant to help get visitors into the holiday spirit, but the Preservation Society says there's one takeaway that stays the same no matter the season. We are in the business of history, so we hope that they walk away from their experience in any of our houses, having learned a little bit about the families who built the houses, about the architect, about the way people worked here, uh, how people entertained. This is still an historic house tour, and we're not here to replace that tour. We're here to enhance that tour. I want them to come to the house and be blown away by the house, and Christmas is just sort of the cherry on the top. Next up, the annual adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is once again taking center stage at Trinity Rep in Providence.
The tale of redemption and compassion shines a light on common threads in Dickens' writings. Poverty, social injustice, and other grim realities of life in Victorian England. This Dickensian world is firmly set in today's society in this 2022 production. And women have taken on many prominent roles this year as well. Tonight, meet the leading ladies. Marley was dead to begin with. A Christmas Carol is one of the most produced stories, one of the most adapted into movies, into theater. So I think I had a sense that eventually I would intersect with this story. I don't think I necessarily expected it to happen here uh, and uh, and quite so fast. Fast because Eileen Wen McGrady just graduated this year from the Brown University Trinity Rep MFA program. Right away, she was entrusted with creating Trinity's most popular production, the 47th edition of A Christmas Carol. She started working on the adaptation this summer. Which was a funny thing to be, you know, sitting on my porch in a July sun, <laughs> you know, humming Christmas carols to myself. Writing it. And McGrady says while writing, she began to explore why so many Americans cling to the Christmas vision of Dickens' Victorian London. For this story, because it is so popular, it has so many sort of uh, cultural attachments and traditions attached to it. So I became really curious about what is the, the reason why we go back to this myth almost. What is the reason? I think that this story presents an aspirational fantasy. I mean, we live in this very unequal society, which was as true then as it is now, where we struggle to um, figure out how to be open truly to the world and the people in the world around us, how to be truly open to the needs of those people that we share the world with. And I think that there's a little bit of Scrooge in all of us. So it might look minimal, but there's a lot of things that uh, might emerge. I see a lot of trap, trap doors. doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? sees her role as shaking up the non-traditional tradition of coming to see A Christmas Carol. The fact that you are able to take a new approach to a story that everybody knows and loves is a huge opportunity for an artist. You realize that when people are walking into the space, they're already thinking about the story. They're already carrying memories of maybe past productions. And so when they come into the theater, you can really take them on a, a new and surprising journey. One surprise, Ebenezer Scrooge is a woman, played by veteran company actor Phyllis Kay. It begins as the rotted residue of death. Kay is the first woman in two decades to take on the role, an idea that germinated during the pandemic. I talked to Eileen during lockdown, and she had such beautiful ideas. And I realized that, I mean, hopefully the world has changed and I've changed. And I thought maybe the audience is ready to hear this story, which is effectively a human story. And does it matter if a man is the conduit or a woman is the conduit to tell the story of redemption? I don't think it does. Is that your goal, is to get people to look beyond gender and to just see character? I hope they watch it and they see that everybody is capable of change. I hope ultimately it doesn't occur to them that it happened to a woman, but just that it happened to a person. 
and it changed them. To my aunt Ebenezer Scrooge, my mother's only sister, whom, whom I love very much. Other changes in this year's Christmas Carol, Scrooge's nephew Fred is gay. And the Cratchit family is Latino. I'm intending to put people on stage that look like the people that are in my world, that are in all of our world. It's got one foot in 1800s London, firmly rooted in the source material, and the other foot is right here, right now, 2022 Rhode Island. And it is important to me that the people that we see telling our stories are people that are bringing the beautiful diversity of the world around us to the stage. Kay says she hopes people come with open hearts, but worries they may be expecting a more standard Christmas carol. Somebody who used to work on the show said the audience comes and they want their figgy pudding. You know, they want their, <laughs> they want elements of the traditional. Show that person to me, the show is a ritual for many local families, including Kay's. She grew up in Fall River and has played a dozen different characters in Christmas Carol, including Mrs. Cratchit with her real-life husband, Richard Donnelly, who has also played Scrooge. He's a very quick study, which is irritating. You know, so he would, I think he can look at the script and close it and then be ready to perform it. And he knew my lines before I knew them. But Kay has her own method of bringing Scrooge to life. The way I was trained was you don't become the character, the character becomes you. So what I know about what it means about to be marginalized, to be lonely, to have a door close, and, and what that does to you emotionally. We see Scrooge at the beginning of the show, at the beginning of the story. What happened to somebody? who was so closed off. And part of the intention with this production is to sort of invite the audience to go, what are the ways that you could be more open? What are the ways that you cl close yourself off, maybe because of protection or fear or grief or habit? It's one of the most beautiful Dickens lines about how we're all fellow travelers to the grave and not a separate race of creatures. You know, so there's a moment at the end where, of redemption, where Scrooge looks into the audience and says, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. You know, and I feel the audience responding to that in that moment. Now we turn to finding that perfect gift, something old or something not so old. As we first reported last October, if you think of antiques as dusty furniture and your grandmother's china set, you'd better take a fresh look in your attic. Today, Transformers, Star Wars figures, and Pokemon cards are collectibles worth big money. Native Rhode Islander Travis Landry knows about that firsthand. He's a young man with an old soul and a keen eye. I love the arts. And that's where, you know, growing up as a little kid, I was like, oh man, you know, I want to sing, act, do all this stuff. And then I developed the love for antiques, collectibles, and then I figured, how can I merge these two worlds? Cumberland native Travis Landry got those two worlds to merge by joining the team on Antiques Roadshow. This is hotter than fire. The demand for these cards is uncontrollable. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I feel like I don't work a day in my life. I just play with toys and cool stuff. So I'm a nerd, right? Like, yeah. 
But, you know, I'm a dedicated nerd and I've taken all this time to study and put into this practice just like someone who wants to become a doctor or a lawyer. Landry has been putting his knowledge into practice on Antiques Roadshow since he was just 20 years old. Now at 27, he's the youngest appraiser on the long-running PBS program. Landry is of the generation that can value items such as Magic the Gathering cards, a precursor of the Pokemon craze. So cumulatively, you're looking at at auction between $65,000 and $100,000 in trading cards here. Oh my here. gosh. 100 now, 110. I have 100 on the early my model looking for 110. 110 now, 120. Landry specializes in millennial, Gen X, and Gen Z nostalgia. 15 models in that lot. The bid is with Mary at 100 go 110. Landry's full-time job is as an auctioneer at Bruno & Company in Cranston, where he's the director of pop culture. 190 on the sci-fi, about 200, two and a quarter, two and a half. Great unused models. What drew a young man like you to antiques? There's nothing else like it. And what's funny, I try to explain to my friends today, uh, who I went to high school with and college, and they're like, how can you be into all this stuff? You know, knickknacks, dust collecting. I'm like, no, it's not. It's cool. It's history. His history reveals why he's so at home in an auction house. I grew up going to auctions every week with my parents. Uh, going, They collected pottery, like more traditional antiques. I mean, there were some weeks we go to four auctions in a week. You know, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday, Friday. And then if it was a big auction, it'd be like a Saturday day sale, going to a lot of on-site auctions. I was going there literally since, as my dad will say, a baby in my mom's arms. Landry's mom was a nurse, his father a captain on the Woonsocket Police Force. They shared a passion for treasure hunting, and Landry caught the bug. And I was hooked, absolutely hooked. You know, and I would just spend all my time looking for toys. We've driven to Wisconsin, Michigan, buying collections um, just because on the hunt for them, you know, and it's all I wanted to do all day long, every day. Is it as fun as it looks? It is as fun as it looks. I mean, I've been doing this since as long as I can remember, since I was 13 years old. That's when Landry went from accumulating toys to making his first big sale. He borrowed money from his dad to buy a bounty of Transformers from a private collector. So I buy it for 700 the collection, sell everything for $1,400, double up on my money, and I get to keep the best piece that I still have today. You know, it was a 1984 Mirage, uh, what they call pre-rub, a little nerd terminology for the first Transformers that came out. With growing nerd knowledge, a chance to be on TV came along. However, Antiques Roadshow was not his first rodeo. My name is Travis, and I've been collecting toys for roughly about 10 years now. I remember the ad, do you want to be part of a new reality TV show? And I was like, okay, I guess, why not? So I responded saying, this is my name, Travis Landry, collect Transformers. And it was for a show at the time called Toy Hunter which was coming out on Travel Channel. I go to a lot of yard sales, flea markets. It's like money in the bank. Landry became a recurring cast member on Toy Hunter while still a student at Mount St. Charles High School. Well, most people seek antiques as a hobby, but did you ever think that you'd have this as your career? So I did not. I was studying nuclear engineering, and I'll never forget, it was my first year in college. I'm in the back of my chemistry class, and that previous summer, I had bought my first painting to sell, and I could sign it at auction. I watched it sell for, you know, five times what I paid. I was like, what am I doing here? He switched his major to art history and went to work at Bruno's auction house. I will say I'm a professional, but I can have fun while being a professional. You know, it's, we're dealing with toys, comics, and cool things. You know, of course I'm going to be enthusiastic. It's awesome. 
and I'll have a 30 minute conversation with a gopher that's in my backyard. You know, I'm just, I'm happy that I just, I love meeting people, love talking, love having a good time, entertaining. Issue 52, this book is literally hotter than fire. What do you think people might have in their attic or their cellar that they don't realize is valuable? What could you tell them? I know this sounds like a little generic, but really all of pop culture is hot. And what I mean by that is whether it's Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Masters of the Universe, He-Man, My Little Pony, you know, Princess of Power, or original Nintendo games, and even outside of the toys, I mean, vintage sneakers, t-shirts, it's video games, even VHS tapes are now becoming collectible. You always wanted to play with toys when you grew up. Yeah, or not play, collect, because I never, it's weird, you know, my parents at Christmas time, they'd buy me five, six Transformers, whatever, it's like I'd take those five toys, go down to my basement and go, boop, on the show. Just shelf. wanted to have them. Just wanted to have them. Yeah, just wanted to have them. I wouldn't play with my toys. Best to save everything in the box. Yes, keep it all. Don't open anything. Because he says they are much more valuable untouched. What Landry collects these days is not what you might expect. His vintage Victrola plays vinyl records from the 50s. Modern art mixes with federal furniture and pottery. Landry says his home isn't cluttered, it's curated. My taste is eclectic. The way I like to do it, I don't collect one particular thing anymore. I just try to collect the best examples of all different things along the way. It speaks and to I, you. Yeah, and I just like learning about it because that's, that's the greatest thing about this job and the items is that every single piece has a story behind it. And a good story is what Landry's always looking for. So. Prime example, one of my favorite items I've ever appraised on Antiques Roadshow was a Aurora Plastics Godzilla model kit. Just for the sheer fact that I was like, how did you acquire this model? He goes, I needed something to bring to Antiques Roadshow, so I bought this for a dollar at a yard sale last week. I said, really? It's a three to $500 model kit. Not gonna light the world on fire value-wise, but that story, you know, we love hearing stories. Things need to be appreciated. History needs to be preserved. I think people should collect. It's something fun. It's something, you know, as my dad will say, it kept me out of trouble. I was, instead of worrying about anything else, you know, I was worrying about understanding toys and looking for the next find. Finally, as the holidays approach, parents across Rhode Island are stocking up on gifts. Tonight in our continuing My Take series, we look at a holiday favorite, toys, with the help of a longtime Rhode Island-based toy designer. So people have asked me, which toy of all the ones you made is your favorite? And I have to say, it's this one, the Snoopy Copter. My name is Keeper Nichols, and this is My Take on toys. I'm an industrial designer and I'm also a professor at Rhode Island School of Design. I designed toys at Hasbro for 20 years and two months exactly. I think the most recognizable toy that I worked on for sure is My Little Pony. One of the fun things about doing a playset for My Little Pony is that you get to d design all of the little accessories within the playset. I came up with the idea of having a baby dragon. Wow, purple spiky things! Oh. Oh. 
And so Spike became the baby dragon friend of Majesty, who is the pony that comes in the My Little Pony dream castle. So one of the fun aspects of the feature for Spike is that he gets to ride up and down in this little basket. And I have to admit, the inspiration for this feature came from watching the movie Rear Window. Another really fun toy to work on was Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. So before this character that we worked on, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head were very kind of plain. They were plastic like this, but they had very little personality. And so we had the job of, you know, bringing uh, freshness and more life and animation into the characters. Mr. Potato Head, I made you. It was my idea to have this little hatch, and it was inspired by the Dr. Denton onesies that toddlers wear that have a little flap in the back when they're learning how to potty train. And so this just opens up and it's plenty of room to put the parts in. And we made sure the parts were flexible enough and um, soft enough that they could bend and flex and this can change. Put them all together, One day, one of the G.I. Joe uh, group guys came over and asked me if I would like to be a G.I. Joe character. And I thought, are you serious? Before you know it, I had my character. This was Doc, actually, from the first series of the small G.I. Joe characters. Probably 1982 was when this came out. Toys are important because this is how children start to understand the world that they're in. So imagine a toddler sitting in a wading pool and you give him a block. Uh, a wooden block, and then, you know they they kind of splash it in the water, and it and it floats to the top, and they get very excited about that. And then when you hand them something that doesn't float, you know they put it in the water right away, and they do the same thing, and it doesn't come up to the top. And so what looks like play, and it is play, is also discovery. So one day I had a prototype for a toy, and I had the opportunity to sit next to an eight-month-old who was going to teach me about the human factors of the toy. Did I get the shapes right? Did I get the size correct? Is it gonna be fun for the child? So I sat down next to the child and I took the toy out of the box. And the child got very excited about the box. Actually, the box was more interesting than the toy because the box was something that the child could put on their head and then they could put it down on the floor and then they could put something in the box and they could dump something out of the box. So yeah, sometimes the box is even more, more engaging than what's in the box. I'm Keeper Nichols and this has been my take on toys. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you and good night.